You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks for leading us this morning. I, I was saying to the worship team, as I've said often uh, as I get up to preach, uh, when, when, when this team brings the gifts that God has given them <laughs> to the people of God, and the people of God participate in what the Spirit is doing in that moment, there is a reordering of the universe. <laughs> as we worship, we acknowledge that God is at the head of it all, (laughs) and we are his people, and he builds us up by the Spirit. We are a family, Uh, and uh, there's, uh, uh, we've been preaching through a a book uh, called Galatians, and and we're going to come to a text that is dealing with some family matters uh, in the text, and and, and a lot of it has to do with the family dinner table, (laughs) And so that's where we're going this morning, is to the family dinner table. And perhaps you have, uh, I mean, Easter is coming up. Maybe you have some family that's coming into town, uh, and you're dreading the family dinner table. I mean, it doesn't always turn out the way we want, right, uh, around a family dinner. Well, that's essentially what is happening uh, in our text today. The passage uh, in Galatians this morning deals with a serious problem at the family dinner table. And so will you turn with me uh, to Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 11 to 21 as we continue on through uh, this book. Uh, And here, the Apostle Paul uh, is addressing an issue with one that, that has been raised by one of his fellow apostles, Peter, who in the text is called Cephas. Uh, he gets two names. He's that good. Uh, he's called Peter and Cephas, uh, but when you, when you hear the word, the name Cephas, uh, he's referring to Peter, the apostle, who is from Jerusalem. So I invite you, Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21, hear the word of the Lord. When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews... Uh, um, joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among also among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? 
Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you this morning that as we have simply uh, arrived, come, come in the doors or, or turned on the television, that as we've arrived, Jesus, you've had uh, something in mind for us long before that moment, and we are recipients of your grace. And so today I pray, Jesus, that you would make us into a family in a greater way. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, for those of you who are in the room, can you hear that noise out there, or is it just me? Okay, we can all hear it. Um, uh, Sam, do you mind closing that door for me? That might help. I don't know. Uh, and maybe those doors back there, but whatever. We're going to roll with it. Is it. It might be birds. It might be an alarm. I don't know. Uh, I can hear it. I know others can. We're going to rock and roll here. You can hear the problem at the table from the very outset of this in verses 11 to 13. It spells out the problem. The apostle Peter, he pulls a bit of a jerk move in this text. Did you catch it? Being a Jewish church leader, he somehow decides to stop eating with Gentile Christians. And now normally... Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. It was part of God's law. In order for a Jew to be set apart as God's people, they, they had to adhere to a specific, a specific diet. And the Gentiles did not. Gentiles ate food that was considered unclean, which meant that eating with a Gentile made a Jewish person unclean as well. And so they never ate at the same table. But Peter, Peter at some point in his life, and we read about it in the book of Acts, he comes to understand that on the cross, the ethnic division between Jew and Gentile had been dismantled by Jesus. Because of Jesus, Gentiles were being invited into the family of God because it is Christ who makes a person clean, not the food that a person does or does not eat. In fact, the Apostle Peter was on the forefront of this racial reconciliation because of this vision he had from the Lord. Peter risked being seen as an unclean person by his fellow Jews because he was convinced that on the cross, Jesus had done something so powerful that the old religious divisions he lived with were no longer necessary. He saw that they were powerless. And so he would eat with the sinful Gentiles. 
And that comes up in the text, right? The Gentiles are called sinful. They're called sinful because they didn't have the law. They didn't have this set of requirements that one could follow in order to, 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 to be clean. And so Peter, he has this vision and he eats with the Gentiles. Well, our text begins, look in verse 12. Our, our text begins today telling us that this was his practice in Antioch, that Peter ate with the Gentile Christians. But then a company of Jewish Christians, they arrive in town from Jerusalem. And when they do, Peter pulls back. He stops eating with the Gentile Christians. And now what we need to understand is that these actions, they're not simply Peter being a jerk, right? Uh, Paul doesn't call him out on all of this because Peter is being unkind and insensitive, though he most certainly is. Paul calls Peter out because what he was doing was an assault on the gospel itself. Peter, in effect, was rebuilding the wall of division that Jesus destroyed on the cross. And others were following him in his hypocrisy. And so Paul writes this letter to, to confront him or, or speaks about this moment in history when he confronts uh, Peter publicly for these actions. Verse 14, look at the text. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, this is Peter and, and, and the others, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Because essentially what was happening was he, he, he was requiring that in order to share fellowship at the table, they needed to eat like Jews. And the question at the heart of Peter's actions is this. Who gets a seat at God's table? Who gets a seat? Who are the true people of God? Who is God's authorized church? Now, you might not see it at first, but, but here's what we need to know. In the first century Middle Eastern context, sharing a meal with another person was like inviting that person to be part of your family. In fact, it's still that way in most countries across the world, just not here in North America. <laughs> to eat with another person means you consider them family. If anyone who has been invited to a meal with our, our Syrian friends, you maybe know this well, <laughs> it's an invitation to be part of the family. My preaching mentor, Daryl Johnson, he, he tells a story uh, about pastoring in Manila in the Philippines. And a woman had become a Christian at his church, and her life was radically changed, beautifully changed. But the challenge that she faced was the fact that her husband was a devout Muslim, and he was not very happy about this change that had taken place. Well, one day, Daryl got a call from the husband asking to meet for lunch and to talk about this unwelcome situation. And so, Daryl, with... A little fear and trepidation, he goes for lunch with the man, and things get tense and confrontational. And at the end of the meal, Daryl gets up to say his goodbye, and at that point, the man looked Daryl in the eye and said, Now, Daryl, if you ever need anything at all, 
you just call me. Whatever you need, just ask. I want to help you however I can. Obviously, Daryl was taken aback, and so he asked the man why. And he responded. He said, well, we've shared a meal together. Now we're like family. And that's the nature of sharing a meal in a Middle Eastern context. It's an embrace into the family. But Peter... Peter does the opposite. He stops eating. He stops eating with the people he formerly ate with. He raises the question, who is welcome in the family of God? Who gets a seat at the family table of God? Who are the true people of God? And Peter's actions We're in effect saying, if you want to be accepted into God's family, if you want God to see you as righteous and deserving of your seat at the table, you need to act like us Jews. You need to follow our customs. You need to observe the law. And Paul will have none of it. None of it. Why? Because following the law Observing food laws and and circumcision and Sabbath keeping, observing these laws doesn't make a person righteous. That's what Paul is saying in verse 15. He says, we who are Jews by birth, and and I believe the we here are, are Jewish Christians. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, the Gentiles who don't have the law, we, so i got to read it again. I just have too many provisos. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Now, the word justified here is important. It's drawn from courtroom language. It's like the judge looking upon a guilty defendant and saying, You've been pardoned. You're free and clear. As far as I'm concerned, I see you in right standing. Imagine that. A guilty person. Someone who is far from righteous, far from good, far from measuring up to God's perfection, and she or he is standing before God, giving giving God an account of all they have done wrong in life, all of the good things they have failed to do in life. And then after hearing it all and knowing full well that there was a whole bunch that was left out, (laughs) the judge looks the unrighteous person in the eyes and says, you're pardoned. You're free and clear. As far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at a righteous person. That's justified. And Paul says, no work of the law could ever do something like that. I mean, how could the law do something like that? No good deed and no religious observance has the power to produce that effect from the lips of God. You're justified. You're pardoned. You're part of the family. No work of the law could do it. 
In other words, no one gets a seat at God's table of righteousness by being obedient to the law or through our good deeds. Rather, we are given a seat at the table. We're given a seat at the table by believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross. There on the cross, Jesus took our unrighteousness, our sins upon himself, and he suffered their consequences. He endured the guilty verdict on our behalf. He paid its penalty so that we might sit at the table. Who gets to sit at the table? Sinners like us. This is the scandal of the gospel. It's scandalous. The scandal of the gospel is that God invites sinners to eat at his table. To eat at his table, not as outcasts, but as precious daughters and sons. It's scandalous. It's beautifully scandalous. And if you recall from Jesus' life and ministry, there were two things that, that really got the religious leaders of his day hot under the collar. Two things. First, they got angry because he healed people on the Sabbath, right? And second, because he ate with sinners. It's what got Jesus crucified. He ate with sinners. The whole gospel could be summed up in this, the Son of God welcomes sinners to God's family table. The truth of the gospel is that as broken and sinful people, you and I, we have been welcomed to sit at the table of God's righteousness. And we don't deserve our seat. We haven't earned it. How could it happen? It happens through Jesus. We've been invited into the family. Not because we follow Jewish laws or religious customs or Christian ones for that matter. We've been invited to the table not because of any ritual or good deed we perform. Not because of our ethnicity or the color of our skin. Not because we are worthy. <laughs> We are welcome to sit at the table of God's righteousness because through the cross, Jesus looks at us and he can say, you're pardoned, you're forgiven, and I've prepared a place for you. Because of Jesus, you belong. <laughs> Peter's actions, they weren't simply rude. They were an affront and violation of what God had done through Jesus Christ in preparing the table for us. His actions stood in opposition to the gospel, which is what Paul summarizes in verse 21. At the end, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, this gift of God. I don't set it aside. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But Christ did die for something. He died to gather all of us, every single person on this great planet. He died to gather all of us around God's table to be part of his family because it's the only way to get us all together. 
It's the only way to salvation. As I've been reflecting on the text this morning, and and there's a lot in here, I've been thinking about God's salvation for, for, for us as people, an invitation to all. As I've been thinking about God's salvation through the lens of this family dinner table metaphor, I've wondered this. If salvation is Jesus' invitation for all of us to, who are undeserving to take our place at God's family table, then two questions arise. First, what does this table actually look like? This metaphorical table, what does it look like? And second, what happens around the table? I want to answer those two questions. First, what does God's family table look like? Uh, I remember in high school, uh, the tables in my high school lounge, I know I'm pretty old, but I can remember that far back. Uh, It wasn't that long ago. The tables in the high school lounge were these long picnic tables. It was like they were massive. They were like, I don't know, 20 feet long. That's probably my imagination, but they were really long. (laughs) And the beauty of this style of of picnic table uh, was, uh, the beauty of it was for introverts and self-conscious teenagers alike. You can sit alone at one end of this table and never have to interact with anyone else at all. It's a beautiful table if you're an introvert or a self-conscious teenager. (laughs) You never have to look anyone in the eyes. And while that's nice in high school or the mall cafeteria, it's not the way God's table works. It's not the way God's table works. Salvation is more like a round table. When we take our seat at the family table that Jesus has invited us to, we take it surrounded by other people, whether we like it or not, (laughs) whether we like them or not. (laughs) We are surrounded by other people. And because the table of God's salvation is a round table, it means two things. First, it means that we are not alone at the table. We're not alone. Mark this, church. Salvation isn't a rescue mission for broken individuals. Yes, broken individuals are rescued. (laughs) But salvation isn't solely a rescue mission for broken individuals. Jesus didn't do all that he did on the cross to populate heaven with a bunch of individuals who are going about doing their own thing, their own vision of what they think they should do in heaven. Right? Like sitting on a beach somewhere or driving a Ferrari. (laughs) The goal of salvation is not God saving individuals, but God saving a people. A people. In Christ, God is rescuing a people who are individually and collectively being reformed into God's image so that we might carry that image in the world today. and into eternity. This is salvation. The point is, salvation is a round table, and we are not alone at the table. We might prefer that we were alone so we wouldn't have to deal with some of the other people, but but that's not how it works. To be saved means that we are saved into the family of God. And God is carving out a people in this world to carry his name among it, to reflect his image, his love, his glory, his beauty, not as individuals, 
but in our life together. Our North American individualism, it, it predisposes us to want a high school picnic table kind of faith in Christ. It does. We can't get away from it. I prefer a gospel that simply deals with my soul and secures a private place for me in heaven with, of course, a few of my select friends and family. <laughs> That's what we prefer. We prefer a gospel that only deals with us in individualistic terms. But that's not the gospel Jesus gives us. Salvation is a round table, and we cannot be the salvation people that God intends without taking the shape of this table seriously. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't have an individual choice to make. Of course we do. <laughs> but we need to see the greater picture. What Jesus did and what the scriptures tell us is not about our individual life. It's a much bigger, greater, beautifuler picture. Beautifuler. Is that a word? We're making it up. Listen, there's a great temptation in our North American churches that we have always been in danger of, but we are all the more in danger of now that we've spent two years in COVID isolation from one another. We are always in danger of believing that we can be God's people independent of a local Christian community. That we can be the body of Christ without the rest of the body. And I've heard countless stories of, of people who have given up on gathering together given up on, on fellowship within the church because they think it's unnecessary for one reason or, or another. And there are many reasons. They get more out of the hour of power on faith TV or, or from a hike up Knox Mountain on a Sunday morning. So they see no real need to be part of the local embodied church. Oh, but as a pastor... <laughs> Let me say this with gentle force. That might work for you. But that idea of individualistic Christianity is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's not what Jesus has in mind. And it's a fabrication of our times. The table of salvation is round, which means we don't sit at it alone. And we shouldn't try to. And if you are, maybe that's the way you've spent the better part of your Christian life. If you are, you're missing something that God has intended for our, our salvation and for the world that he came to save. At the table of salvation, we are not alone. We don't sit there alone. But the second thing it means in this round table is that we are also not alike, which is what makes it so hard. That's the second thing to note. The people around this table of faith are not all the same. We're different. We look different. We, we're, we're different ages. We prioritize our values differently. 
We think differently. We have different taste in music and clothes. We have different skin and different customs. We eat different foods. And all of these differences can be really hard. Some of these differences are the reason for the problem in in Galatia. We sit at a round table and we're not all alike, and and sometimes that can be really hard. As a young adults pastor going back like 15 years ago back in North Vancouver, I remember I pulled uh, some of our group together. There were about 20 of us or so, and we had a worship service, but we did it sitting in chairs facing one another around the circle. We weren't in rows, but one big circle. We sang songs to the Lord, but we had to look at each other when we did it. It was the most awkward thing I have ever done in my life. And I asked the group after how the experience was. And a young woman offered something of a confession. It was a real honest confession. She said, I hated that. I think we'd be lining up behind her. Yes. (laughs) If ever there was an amen in the crowd. But then she said, it was hard. Because to be honest, I felt myself judging people around the circle singing songs of praise to the Lord. And I saw them loving Jesus in here, but I'm not really sure they're loving Jesus out there. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot loaded in there. The round table of salvation is hard because it means we need to live with and worship with people who are not always like like us. And it means we need to face our own stuff and other people's stuff. (laughs) United in Christ. And here's the thing. We don't get to walk away. How could we walk away from the table? (laughs) Salvation. We don't want to walk away. We are called to work through our stuff and our differences. Around the table, we're not all alike. But there's another side to these differences. Our our differences sometimes are beautiful, aren't they? They're beautiful. We need them. In our differences, we get a greater picture of God's image. The differences among the church are where the power and beauty of the gospel shine the most. Christian unity is in the midst of our diversity. Christian unity, not uniformity. That's the power and the beauty of the gospel at work, where people come together because of Jesus. <laughs> and they come together in their differences because of him. That's what the family table of God looks like. It's round, which means we're not alone and we're not alike. But there is one last important question to answer. What happens when we come together around this diverse table, right? What What happens when we come to the table? When we pull up our seat and, Chris, how did you say it? Put both our feet under the table? What happens when we do that in the church? Well, it's there where God fills us with his Holy Spirit. And as he fills us with his Holy Spirit, He reshapes us into the image of God.
You see, it's the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross that invites us to the table of God's family. But it's the grace of the Holy Spirit that transforms us into a people who carry that family name in a way that resembles the God who made us. We don't make ourselves righteous. We don't make ourselves holy. We don't become better people. That's not what God wants from us. He wants us to be filled with his own presence and power so that we might radiate the love and glory of God to the world. Not because of ourselves, but because of him. How could we do it? We couldn't. When the Holy Spirit fills us, he reshapes us, reforms us into the image of God. That's the goal of salvation. (laughs) But that is if we are willing to participate with him. Because sometimes we don't. Let me give you an example of how this uh, works in the life of a believer. Uh, And we're moving along here. So uh, years ago, when I first became a a pastor, uh, an older man in our church, uh, he he wanted to, to meet with me. And so he called me up and said, Keith, can we meet? I want to talk to you uh, about something. And it's like, great, let's do that. And so when we sat down to chat, I realized that he was really angry with me about something. Note to self, if someone says they want to meet with you, always ask, can you just give me a one sentence so I know what we're talking about, just so I know what I'm getting myself into? I learned that as a pastor. (laughs) And we sat down, and, and he was really angry with me because of some of the decisions I had made about our church soccer team. Now, that might sound trite, but this is important stuff. I'm a soccer player. I understand. Problems with the soccer team. This is important. He was angry. You see, the league had required that the majority of players were from our local church. But I had signed a few people on the team who were only loosely connected to the church. This man was quite angry because he thought I was being dishonest. Maybe I was. And I remember my feeling in that moment when he confronted me. An impulse arose inside of me. And it was the impulse to defend myself, to tell him that he was wrong, to write him off as a legalist and a nuisance. Have you ever felt that way about another Christian before? But then another impulse arose in me. And it was the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit whispered in my ear the words from Ephesians 4 and said, Keith, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I had a choice to make. Follow the self-impulse or the Spirit-impulse. And I chose to participate with the Spirit. We spoke honestly. We listened to one another. We prayed. And we both left my office, having been shaped by the Holy Spirit. Shaped into something more resembling of the God that we serve. A testament to the world about what it looks like when we let Jesus lead us 
through the power of his spirit. Church, the world needs to know about this salvation we can find in Christ. And I have to say, it's in moments like that, and I'm not joking, it's in moments where I'm in conflict with someone, and they brought it to my attention, where we can sit down and work it through, committed to one another in the Lord. It's in moments like that where I feel like I am being the kind of church that Jesus has in mind all along. Don't you think that's what Jesus has in mind? And it's ironic, isn't it? Because those Holy Spirit-shaping moments, they come through conflict and disagreement within the church. They come in, in having to work through our differences, whether that be about important matters like soccer or unimportant ones like theology or a misspoken word. I'm glad you can pick up on sarcasm. The point is that what happens around the salvation table is this. The Spirit of God fills us. If we're willing to participate, He fills us in a way that transforms us into the image of God. He shapes us into something more, something greater. Perhaps you're here today, or or maybe you're tuning in online, and your Christian life has really run dry. You feel it. You're in a rut. You feel lifeless. You know there's something more because you've experienced it. You know there's more to your Christian life, but you you feel like you're far from it. And I want to suggest this morning, gently, that perhaps the reason for all of it is because your Christian life is like sitting on a high school picnic bench, mostly alone, and it's safe, controlled, isolated from those who are different or difficult, or maybe who have even hurt you. And can I suggest that by God's design, the more that you're looking for will be found as you lean into community here at Mission Creek Alliance. We're the body of Christ. The shaping work of the Holy Spirit comes as we rub elbows with other people who are, not, who are not exactly like us, but who are at the table of Christ with us. Oh, if only the churches of our world, even our own churches, could get this. I lament the fact that we are so quick to divide over things that don't matter. Christ died so that we might be united in him. And church, we're living it. Um, I'm almost done. (laughs) I want to say that the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't just simply shape us in moments of difference, and this is important to know. The Spirit reshapes us in other places too, of course, like in our fellowship circles, right? We have fellowship circles at the church where people gather for prayer and care and reading Scripture together. It's in those places that the Spirit, He reforms us into His image. He grows us into all that He intends us to be. 
The Spirit of God leads us in a place like that as we gather in these fellowship circles. But also think about our kids. Our kids. They are reshaped into the image of God when people are committed to leaning into the family and raising them to know and love Jesus. Church, we need you. We need you in our nursery and in our Sunday school ministries, in our youth ministries. We, we can't, can't do this unless we take a place at the table and say, hey, I, I'm in. Because the Spirit of God wants to shape our kids. He wants to do it with you. If you like kids, if you don't, don't volunteer for the, the, the kids' ministry. We're just going to say, I think that's just a, we'll, we'll agree on that. <laughs> and I say that not to be controlling. <laughs> Please, it's practical. It's the reality. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Around the table, the Spirit of God reshapes us as we work through conflict and difference together, as we read Scripture together and pray and care for one another, and as we serve other people in the church. Are you with me? I know you're with me. Let me close with this. Gina and I, we, uh, my wife Gina and I, we, we have uh, not a different Gina. Whenever I say Gina and I, I'm, I'm referring to my wife Gina and I. Let's just get that straight. Gina and I, we have a favorite song in our house these days, and it's called Crowded Table, (laughs) fitting, and it's sung by the high women. The chorus goes like this. It says, I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. And then the bridge. The door is always open. Your picture's on the wall. Everyone's a little broken, and everyone belongs. Yeah, everyone belongs. And the artists didn't intend it this way, but the song is a picture of the gospel. It's God's invitation to you today. Jesus has secured your seat at God's table of righteousness, and he's inviting you to take your place, surrounded by the company of others, So in our life together, the Holy Spirit would make us into a people who bear his name well in our world. All that's left is for us to take our seat. Let's pray. Jesus, As we gather on a Sunday morning, I'm mindfully aware that we, we're not just passing time or participating in some kind of ritual we've done, tradition we've done. We are gathered around the presence of Christ. We are part of something much greater. And this morning, uh, Jesus, you're pressing that upon our hearts. I know it. And so, Jesus, because of your grace, We take our place at your table and we say thank you for securing a spot for an unrighteous sinner like me, like us. And Jesus, we want to ask for the further grace of your salvation, a filling of your Holy Spirit. 
that as we take our place at this table together, that Holy Spirit, you would fill us. You would fill us. And that the fruit of your Spirit would do in us something that the law never could. We love you, Jesus. We are your people. And together we lift our hearts to you.